And as you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 39 through 46 today. This is one of Jesus' last moments before his betrayal and arrest and an ultimate crucifixion. This is his prayer on the Mount of Olives to his Father. This is a very emotional section of Scripture and one that deserves our close attention here today. So please listen carefully as we read through our text, as we continue in our worship by looking at God's word today. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39, speaking of Jesus. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's now pray as Jesus calls us to and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would keep us from temptation today. As we look into this text, there's going to be a lot of ways in which we will be seen as failing. And I pray that we would not enter into temptation of self-sufficiency as we look at this text, to think that all I need to do is try harder. I ask that as we look at this text, that you would keep us from temptation of pride. We would look to this thing and say, I do this fairly well. But help us to be humble. Help us to look to this text and run to you. Help us see the gospel more clearly because of this text. I pray that you would be with me as I preach. I pray that you would be with us all as we listen, that we would be ready to hear and obey what you have for us today. Oh, please help us. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. This is a beautiful section of Scripture. This is something where we get to see more of a human side of Jesus. We see Jesus in great distress here. While it's not mentioned here in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, it says Jesus says that he is sorrowful even unto death. This is killing him as he's heading into the garden. 
a place of great emotional distress. Some of you in this room have been there. Some of you have felt deep, dark trials of the soul, where it seems like the night will be everlasting. Jesus has been there too. But even that, while this is a comforting part, is not the main thing we want to see out of this text today. What I want us to see, it would be really two things I want us to see, and you'll see that here in our outline. Is the first is we are called to pray like the health of your soul depends on it, because it does. And the second thing is that healthy prayer is a humble prayer. The reason why I emphasize these things for us is that these are the things that we can do. These are the things that we're called to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. But all of that is based on why it is that Jesus is here. Jesus is here in the garden because he is preparing to go to the cross. Part of the reason why Christ is in agony is because we are disobedient. Because we are sinful. Because we don't pray, among many other things. So I ask as you listen to this text, that you be reminded of why Christ is here. And ultimately be hopeful as to what he's taken for us and what he has done. So let's look through this text together. So here, starting in verse 39. It says, and he came out and went. Now, where is he coming out and going from? As you remember from a previous week, we were looking, well, two weeks ago, we were looking at Christ beginning a new covenant with his people. He sat down at the Passover meal, the same meal celebrated the same way for close to 2,000 years, let's say. It is always meant that God would deliver his people, a reminder of what had happened in the past as a hope for what would occur in the future. And Christ fulfills this Passover by making this about himself. He becomes the Passover lamb. The bread that's broken and the wine that's poured is a symbol of his body that's broken and the blood of his that's poured out meant to be the gospel for us. And it becomes a new meal that we now have been celebrating now for the last 2,000 years again as a reminder of what Christ has done and looking forward to the future for a hope in which we will ultimately be delivered. This has been a beautiful moment that the disciples quickly sully with their pride as they argue about who is going to be the greatest. And we see Jesus saying that the ultimate greatness is, of course, being a servant being the one who gets up from the table and washes feet, the lowliest thing we could do. And he closes by telling us to prepare, telling his disciples, and by extension us, that things will be difficult to prepare ourselves. So how do we prepare ourselves like a servant? What do we do? Well, part of that is what we see here in this text We know in other famous passages of Scripture, we know of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And if I may be so bold as to rename a portion of Scripture, I think this is the servant's prayer. What it is that 
we are called to pray. And this is what he tells the disciples as they come out to the Mount of Olives. They come out of Jerusalem and head up there. The Mount of Olives is about a 30-minute walk from the temple up to the mountain. You can actually see uh, the temple complex from where it is on the mountain. Jesus has been going out there for some time, as it's been his custom. And he comes to them and he says, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, temptation can also mean test here. The disciples are going to be going through quite a test here at the moment. I don't know about you, but it would seem like if the disciples could know everything that was about to happen to them, they're about to face Roman soldiers, they're about to face the prospect of their Lord and Messiah to be arrested, them to be cast out of popular society. The idea of preparing for something like that is to say, go ahead and pray. Most of us would think, yes, and then what else? What else should we do other than pray? This was something that I fell victim to a lot, even in seminary, I'm ashamed to say. When it would become time for testing, I would want to be having my notebooks open, studying right up until the moment it was time to put the paper down. I remember one of my colleagues coming up to me and saying, have you had time to pray yet? I looked at him and I said, no, I have to study. (laughs) Neglecting one of the greatest assets that I had. See, my mistake is I was looking to myself again. Yes, it's important to study, but I was neglecting prayer because I had a very low view of prayer. Wouldn't have said that, of course, but... It's how I lived. Looking at prayer as something that's like, yes, it's supposed to do, but it's not something we really relied on, you know? But this is what Jesus tells his disciples to do. Not to form a flanking position so they could see the Romans coming. Not to get their sword belt strapped on more tightly so they could be sure to get it out of the sheath more easily. It was watch and pray. It's what he calls us to do. How do you prepare for the day? Do you know when temptation and trial is coming? Most of us don't. We're always taken surprised by those things, aren't we? When sin comes along, it was never scheduled. When trial comes along, we never saw it coming. So to know that something like that could happen at any time, Why don't we take advantage of the very thing Jesus tells us to do, which is to pray? We lock our doors at night because we never know what might be coming through. Last night, as the temperature was falling, my doors had adjusted slightly, and it sounded like a little knock at my bedroom door at 1130. So I was very grateful that those doors were locked. But when I think about how I begin my day, Am I more trusting in those deadbolts or am I more trusting in my Lord? Not to say you don't throw the deadbolt, but where do you put your ultimate comfort? What do you depend on? One commentator put it this way. He says, prayer establishes roots in the divine soil that not only absorbs its nutrients, but also holds one securely. When the winds of testing batter one's faith. 
It's a great analogy. You plant a tree in the dirt. That's where it gets its life. And also where it gets its support. You would never just stand a tree up on top of the dirt and let the roots sit out and fall over the slightest breeze. But the deeper you plant in that tree, the deeper those roots go down, the more nutrient and the more security it has. And we are the same way. We are trees. We are roots. We need the soil. We need Jesus. We need prayer. We can't pretend like we can live any other way. Jesus emphasizes this twice in this passage, three times if you look in other sections of Scripture. Something he comes back to again and again shows it's needful. If you find yourself struggling a lot with sin, the question that's worth asking is, how is your prayer life going? When we find ourselves battered by anxiety, What's your prayer life like? A lot of times that can be the key. Because what prayer does is it kills your pride. Recognizes that you need something. And it's a God-exalting exercise because, like, I can't do it, but he can. This is what prayer declares. It's an act of saying, I am weak, so help me. It's a beautiful exercise in truth-telling that nourishes our soul. We need to pray like the health of our soul depends on it. So how do we do that? How do we pray to put our roots down deeply in that divine soil so that we can have nutrients and strength in our spiritual life? Well, let's see what Jesus does. Because you see, Jesus prayed too. He needs it. Certainly we do. So how does he do it? Jesus is about to enter into one of the most stressful times in his life. Let's see how he reacts. Get to verse 41. And he withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. This is the servant's prayer. One that submits one's own desires to the will of God. Notice again how he begins, Father. We too easily start our prayers that way. We're not struck by that as much anymore because we've done it so many times. But the idea that you can have a familial relationship with the God of the universe, that's got to hit. That's got to strike us. I remember seeing a quote somewhere, and I don't remember exactly or, or what the quote went out, but the thrust of it was, is how do you get a king out of bed in the middle of the night? It's to be his child and ask for a glass of water. A child can summon a king. And here we have God, and he commands us to call him Father. It's a beautiful promise that he is referencing here. And that's a wonderful way to start a prayer, to remind yourself of the loving provision that God is calling you. He's not some distant person. 
not a distant, impersonal force. This is a father who loves you deeply. Then let's go on with what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this might be confusing as we look at this. We say, wait a second. I thought Jesus was God. I thought Jesus and his, the, the will of the Son and the will of the Father were the same. Are you telling me that we have conflict within the Trinity? How does this work? There's a couple of different explanations for this, but I think the simplest one is to remember what is Jesus doing? He's praying. The whole thrust of his prayer is not my will but yours in submitting to this. But Jesus is... The mystery of theology, if you remember way back when we started this series in Luke chapter 2, we talked about Jesus being both fully human and fully divine. And with that comes a divine will and a human will. Jesus, as a human being, does not have a death wish. Jesus, as a human being, has the will to live. Nobody wants to go through crucifixion. Nobody wants to go through a scourge. Nobody wants to die. Jesus is not a psychopath. Jesus wants to live. But even as he stated those desires, they're all submitted to his Father. He is still willing to obey for whatever it is that his Father calls to him. This is why I've titled the second point that healthy prayer is humble prayer. This is absolutely soaked in humility. Jesus doesn't have to do this, but he does. Not what I will, but what you will. This is, should be our prayer as well, because we're all servants too, if you remember that from last week. This is a really Really good prayer to keep in mind. When you come up on something that you don't want to do, but you know you should, or something you do want to do that you know you shouldn't, this is a great prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. It's been a very challenging thing for me this week to feel how often I've had to pray that. And what a reminder that this has been in my own life of who it is that I'm submitted to. And then we see, as Jesus prays, verses 43 and 44, it says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Just to address this very quickly, because this is rather academic, but there are some passages, some Bible translations, I think it's the New American Standard, put this, these last two, these verses I've just read in brackets. And the ESV, there's a little footnote that says the earliest manuscripts don't have these verses. If you want to have a fuller discussion about ancient manuscripts and those and nerd out with me after the service, I'm more than happy to have this discussion. But in short, While the earliest copies of this, some of them, don't have these verses, 
there is a huge representation of these verses in the rest of the manuscripts. So I think that these verses are indeed the Gospel of Luke. They are indeed for us today. So we have something to learn about them. If you want to hear more of those reasons, be happy to discuss it afterward. But to keep the focus of where it actually should be, is here's what, here is the response that heaven sends to Jesus. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And we might think to ourselves, well, I wish prayer worked like that for me. Wish I could pray and have an angel come down and strengthen me. Why doesn't that work? Well, notice what it's like still for Jesus after he's had this strengthening. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. So that sweat came off his body like great drops of blood. This is after he's been strengthened. This tells us that prayer doesn't automatically make things easy. Prayer is not the staple's easy button. But what it is is strengthening you for what you need to do. Jesus got up from this and went to the cross. Was it easy? Of course it wasn't. But God gave the strength for him to do that. And that's what he calls us to do. No prayer does it make it simple. No prayer does it make it easy. But it makes it possible. Because it's not relying on you. It's asking for strength from above. He's in agony, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. There have been some that have talked about that there is a uh, physiological condition where when you're really, really stressed, you can blow capillaries in your body and sweat can pour out of your pores. That's not what's happening here. Luke is saying that this is like that. He is sweating so profusely, it's like he's had a great big cut on him where, the, where things are pouring out. Jesus is insanely stressed at this moment, even after this. And it would do us good to say, why? Is it just because he's facing death? I don't think so. Because there are lots of people that have faced death just like Jesus have and have faced it quite calmly. There's a whole book about it, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Many Christians went to their death via crucifixion and did so singing hymns. So why is Jesus so distressed? As it says in Mark, he was sorrowful unto death. In fact, Phil Riken put it like this. It says, the horror of the coming cross brought him to the precipice of death, almost killing him in Gethsemane before he ever made it to Calvary. The suffering of Christ begins here. Why? It's what I mentioned earlier. There is a lot more that Jesus is facing than nails and asphyxiation. What Jesus is facing is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the scariest thing that we could ever encounter. Anything else in your life can maim and kill you. Guns, knives, evil regimes, tanks driving over borders. Those things are scary. But God's wrath can pursue you after death. 
There is nowhere that you can go to hide from the eternal wrath of God that can remake you, destroy you, and remake you again over and over and over. Jesus is facing that wrath that we earned. As it says in Scripture, that the wages of sin is death. In other words, we are paid in death for the work of sin, something we are owed. Jesus didn't know. Jesus wasn't owed that. He didn't commit any sin. His death is a death for someone else. It's a death for you and me. The reason why Jesus is so stressed at this moment is because he needs to take God's wrath because of my prayerlessness. Because of my pride. Because of my desire to live my own way. This is why he is so distressed. Because he's got to pay for Mark Jessup's sins. There's a lot of them to pay for. He's also paying for all of your sins, too. This is what he's bearing. And Jesus prays for strength to be able to endure that. That's love. Jesus isn't doing this unaware of what's coming. It was exactly what's coming. As one commentator put it, is facing it with terror. It's right to be afraid of God. It's what he faces. There's really no way that we can imagine what something like that might be like. There simply isn't an analogy that I could draw that would put us at the same level of dread. One commentator tried. He had remembered a time in which he was um, taking an underground tour. And the section that was going to be leading him back out of the underground was blocked. And he had a momentary fear that he might be trapped there. And the thought that he might not be able to escape overwhelmed him. Then it became unstuck and he was fine and was able to go on. But he was wrestling with that as he had new fear. He was saying, could I face that for the sake of my family? And his eventual conclusion was, I hope I never have to find out. I don't know what your fears are. We all have them. All the thing that we would ultimately fear to come across. And that sense of dread that would come every time we think about that. That's the closest thing that we can get. And that pales in comparison. I fear being buried alive, but I would much rather face that than the wrath of God. This is what Jesus is facing for us. It's to pay for our sin. Now Jesus rises from this moment. Filled with sweat, agony, internal conflict, and dread. And he rises and he finds his disciples asleep. Oh, poor disciples. They have been asleep from sorrow, Luke says. Been worn out by the grief of what's to come. Jesus asks them this question, why are you sleeping? 
Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, rehearsing what it is that he has just done. What has given him strength to go to the cross and what calls us to do. Are you ready to pray that? Are you ready to lay down your will? Maybe again and again and again as we lay it down and pick it back up. Are you ready to pray? Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. Because there are some rather hard circumstances where we have to pray that. Sometimes it's over children. It's over loved ones. It's over dreams and expectations that we had. We realize we can't pursue. The things that we really want out of life, we've got to put down. Are you ready to pray those things? There was a pastor in Philadelphia, uh, Phil Riken's pastor, actually. His name was James Boyce. Pastor Boyce was facing terminal liver cancer. It was simply nothing that the doctors could do. This was in the year 2000. And he was addressing his congregation for the last time in that sermon. But what to pray for in that circumstance? Here's what he said. He said, above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Because Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father 12 legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet, that is where God is most glorified. Do you hear what he's saying? The place where God has been most glorified in the world has been the place of its deepest suffering. The deepest of injustices, Christ dying on the cross, is where God got the most glory. So if we say, if I pray, nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done, that may be hard for me. That's where Jesus can be glorified is in your hardship, sometimes more than in your joy of how he works. But Boyce continues, and this is beautiful. He continues, and he says that not only is God in charge, but God also cares He is good. If God does something in your life, boy said, would you change it? If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you would, you would make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. That's a hard thing to come across. What are you saying? 
God is good in the death of my child. God is good in the frustrating of my life's plan. The glorious moment out of this passage is that I can say unequivocally, yes! Not because of the circumstances that are there, but because of what God's going to do through those things. That's why we can pray with confidence, with joy even, not my will but yours be done. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No, it wasn't easy for Jesus. It's going to be good. Anything that we would change from our lives would make it not as good. We don't know what God's going to do in our trials and circumstances. Sometimes you find out the next week why something happened. Sometimes you find out 20 years from now why something happened. Sometimes you never find out why something happened. But we do know this, that whatever it is that happens, we can lay down our will, our short-sighted, selfish view of the world. And say, not my will, but yours be done. That is the prayer of humble trust. And we can pray it because this is the one we're praying to. The one who was on his face in the garden, sweating like you wouldn't believe to pay for your sins. That's the one we're praying to. Who is willing to do that for your sins. He promises to do great glory in your life. So what's our takeaway from this? We're weak. We're short-sighted. We can't see beyond the next minute. But Jesus can. He calls us to a life that's committed to his glory, which will ultimately be our good. So will you pray, not my will, but yours be done. There is a way in which we pray that every day and say, I'm needing your help once again. But there's also a way, if you haven't already, of submitting your life to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting there and saying, I've wanted to live my life for me. The point of my existence has been my desires, my wants, my dreams. Maybe it's time. Not maybe. It is. Today is the day of salvation. If you've not laid down your life, if you've not said in an ultimate way, not my will, not my life, not my agenda, but yours be done, I would ask you, beg you, command you, with the authority of Christ, to do that today. Submit yourselves. Lay down your life for Christ. And then every day, as you wake up, I want to pick up that life again. Lay it back down. Say, not my will, but yours be done. Your gracious, loving will for me. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, to the one who sweat, to the one who was in agony, to the one who went 
to the cross for us. I ask that you would visit us in this moment. If there is anyone here or anyone who's listening who has not put their trust, their faith in you, I ask that they would do so even in this moment. I pray that you would help us to realize that you have indeed paid it all. Because when you rose from that garden, you rose to the cross and have paid for all of our sins. So may we come to you with joy. Come to you with expectation that you might change us. So that we could joyfully say, not my will, but yours be done. Help us as we go through this week to be reminded of this. Not as something that we earn our way to heaven. Not as something that makes our life easy. But helps us to live our life in the way that you would call us to. Help us, help us to do this. And live looking forward to the day when we're able to say always, your will be done. When we are unencumbered with sin in heaven, oh, we look forward to that day. When there will be no sin, there will be no more contrary will. Bring that day quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.